This is Steve Hurley, and welcome to the Pivotal Outdoors podcast, discussing hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits, swapping stories and feeling alive. Welcome back to the Pivotal Outdoors podcast. I'm Steve Hurley, and tonight I'm here with Paul Roberts and Derek Langway, and we'll be discussing a recent Wyoming pronghorn hunt uh, that they went on this year. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks. Paul, um, my understanding is that you had the tag and uh, Derek was going out just to kind of go for the hunt and be there with the experience and uh, help scout and all that. I was curious, what what drew you specifically to uh, an archery pronghorn type hunt? Well, I think it all started really listening to your podcast about going out to, I think it was Colorado with your dad. and You broke down the uh, the cost of it and uh, it uh, it made it seem attainable before you know you'd watch videos and stuff but you'd be like geez that, that's got to cost thousands and thousands of dollars but you made it seem like something that anybody could do so i started applying to uh, a few western states just to kind of start getting points and stuff because i really didn't know what i was getting myself into i heard wyoming had more pronghorn than people so i figured uh, i would apply there and just kind of start gaining points i had one point from last year and then uh this year when i put in i actually drew it when i got my tag it was a, a type one which is uh any antelope and i started looking into the unit and it seemed like most of the most of the unit was only available for uh archery hunting it's a lot of private land but there's exceptions for archery hunting so i figured i'd uh i'd give it a try I'd never been archery hunting at all as an adult, and uh, I don't even own, own a bow or anything like that. I think I've shot a, a bow once as a, an adult, and uh, I don't know. I, w- I was kind of on the fence for a few months about it, and then uh, one day I decided to stop in a bow shop just to check out the price of it and stuff like that, and it seemed fairly reasonable, and then I got home, and we just in the mailbox, I just happened to have this state COVID whatever bonus money that the governor thinks she needs to hand out. And then right behind that was the uh, the antelope tag. So it seemed kind of serendipitous. I was like, well, now I kind of have to do it. So yeah, I bought a bow and I, uh, a month before this, we were planning on going out and started practicing. Which is pretty wild. I would assume that, uh, it's very different than what you're used to. I mean, I know you're an avid outdoorsman, but primarily you, I mean, you've been all mostly in the main big woods, which I, I haven't been there, but I just imagine it is thick and dense and just all timber. That's my view. Is that kind of your environment you would say? Yeah. Even during rifle season, if you get, oh, probably a 75 to a hundred yard shot, that's a long shot for us. Most shots are within 50 yards. And then now you're you have a Wyoming tag with a bow, and I would I would think the landscape of Wyoming where you guys were at was that just completely different, like another planet. Yeah, it was incredible because you could see endlessly. You know what I mean? Um, I can see why people like to hunt out west because you can just look out over the landscape and kind of pick things apart. Okay, so you you got this tag in Wyoming. 
talking to Derek. He's game. He wants to go on this adventure with you. Um, and he's down in Virginia. Can can you guys kind of touch on your logistics of uh, how you decided to make your way out to Wyoming to, to actually go on the hunt? Yeah, I think I can jump in here. As the self-appointed Pivotal Outdoors travel agent, I basically made our options. Really, there was just two ways to go, either fly and and do everything by air or drive. The price point for for flying was actually cheaper uh, on the face value. But then when we got into looking at it, uh, at this time, there was like rolling delays and a lot of flights getting canceled. And then also the price of checking your checking your uh, bow, the possibility of them losing it, having to pay the, the airline fee to get all the meat home because you never not expect to kill. All of those kind of weighed heavily on the negative, which were sort of intangible. So when it came down to, when it came down to it, we chose the ground option. I'm in Northern Virginia. And so I took the Amtrak eight hours north. So I just picked up at my local station. Uh, it was just right on Quantico. So 15, 20 minutes from my house. Two bags packed. I didn't have to check anything. I just walked on to the train. Uh, eight hours later, I was in Albany, New York, which, which just so happened to intersect Paul's driving route. So I kind of made a, a T. So I took the Amtrak north until I met up with his driving directions and it just worked out. What time did you leave, Paul? I left at, I think it was one o'clock or maybe 1230, something like that in the afternoon. I live in kind of central Eastern Maine, almost as far East as you can get in this country. And so, uh, it took about, uh, it was a seven hour drive to go from where I live down to Albany, but I had a couple hours of buffer time in there just in case there was a lot of traffic or something like that. But uh, we actually timed it out perfectly. Yeah, I got on my train at about 2 p.m. And then there was a couple connections and a few a few hours of waiting. Uh, but at 10 p.m., I was in Albany, New York, uh, which was the exact moment that Paul picked up. I walked across the parking lot right to the main road. And there he was. So we we packed up and started driving. And when it was all said and done, from Albany to our BLM campsite, it was an extra 31 hours. 31. So plus, let's say, eight hours of traveling, right, for you guys. So or seven hours or whatever. So 38, 39 hours just to get out yeah. there. Yeah. We each took uh, about two and a half hour to a three hour nap in that entirety of the travel. Yeah. Well, when you're. Paul, you make that sound like a lot, like that. but that, that sounds like nothing. <laughs> That's how they torture prisoners. Well, it's, it's, it felt like more than we needed, really. Yeah. <laughs> you got, you're running off that high just going out there. Yeah. Yeah, because I've never driven any further west than eastern ohio and uh so i was excited just to see what the the landscape of the country was like did you guys at least have some good tunes or podcasts or anything going on because i mean there's nothing but time i would burn through all my stuff 
Do you guys mostly radio or, or did, was uh, Derek DJ in the whole way? Uh, mostly radio. We did listen to a few podcasts, but uh, yeah, it was mostly radio. And we tried to find things that we could just sing to or whatnot, even even if it was horrible. Yeah. Um, it, it helps keep your mind going and keeps you focused on driving. I don't know. I, you can speak for yourself, but my singing was exceptional. <laughs> it was yeah. enough to keep uh, keep keep everyone up, right? Exactly. Yeah, it definitely was. There's a reason why and... I only slept two and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys uh, make the huge trek across uh, across all the so-called flyover states, and then when you got to Wyoming and in your your BLM site. What what kind of time was it, and what were you, like your first actions hitting the the unit and everything? I got to say, we were kind of uh, disappointed by the time we got up there because we had driven all the way across Nebraska through part of Wyoming, and we hadn't seen a single antelope. So I I was starting to think this might be much harder than I anticipated, and uh, but luckily, as soon as we turned onto the dirt road to get up into the unit. There was a pronghorn that ran alongside us on the road and then ran across in front of us. So we were pretty energized at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good omen. So you got there, set camp, right? And then um, I guess in the morning started hunting just right from the truck or did you guys like move to an area and then start? Uh, like what, what were your, your tactics going into it? Like a spot and stalk, a decoy? What was uh, your, the method to your madness, I would say? Well, the the first day we were up there, it was just a scouting day. We got up there the Sunday before the season started. And, uh, yeah, it was, I was super excited because I got to see some prairie dogs and cactuses and stuff like that. It was awesome. Uh, I even saw a coyote first thing in the morning because uh, we got in there at about midnight. Yeah, it was like midnight and then uh, local time there. And we got up in the morning, I think it like, 5.30 or 6. I can't really remember now. But uh, yeah, it was early enough to see that coyote out there. But uh, yeah, we just drove the unit and glassed everywhere we could. Checked out the antelope that we found. Now, you said um, you said there's a lot of private on this area, and I know you're on some BLM land. Were, were there a, a decent amount of roads um, that you guys could get around on? And like, could you access roads even if they went through like larger portions of private? Well, the road that we were taking up through kind of the middle of the the area, uh, it's a, a state road, I think. It's not a private road, but it does cut through a lot of the, the private land. And we had no issues there. Some of the little side roads, they would actually have signage that said private road. So, you know, we didn't we didn't go down those. But there were a couple HMAs in that lower section that allowed that it's private land that the state pays to allow access to hunters. So there was a couple of those we had scouted out. I had permission to go on, but the problem is we couldn't actually set foot on it until the season started, which was, uh, that was kind of rough. Oh, okay. Um, now you said that you got permission. Was that just, um, was that through like a certain type of private landowner type, system or request or were you just looking up who owns the area and just reaching out to them how, how what did that kind of look like well uh on the wyoming 
uh, Fish and Game website, you can look up the HMAs for each zone, and they tell you, they give you a date, at least this is from my experience, they give you a date to apply for permission. There's only a limited amount of permissions uh, per area. And so, uh, yeah, I just set my alarm as soon as it was, I think it was 7 o'clock there. So it would have been 9 or 10 o'clock out here. And uh, so I just logged right on and applied. Uh, I wasn't the first one, but luckily I wasn't the last one either. Wow. Yeah, I could I could see that. Um, that's interesting, you know, because I'm sure they just have something automatically set up, I guess. It's just a pure numbers game, I'm assuming, uh, for these private landowners. Um, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, they allowed access, but they're like, I don't want to give too much access. And in the end, we didn't even end up hunting either of them. So, oh, okay. But well, we we did we did check out one a little bit where we could, and there were pronghorn there, so that that was a great summer. Okay. And let me break in here. We did a lot of e scouting, and none of the stuff that we marked uh, going into it looked the way that it, it was when we showed up. Like there's there's just something about you know, getting your feet on the ground and looking at it and realizing, wow, I was expecting something in, like a, a mental picture of what this e-scouting looks like based off of like my own little topographic map in my head. But getting out there, like it, we were at, uh, I think it was 6,500 feet. It was uh, a high plain, not much rain going on. There was a lot of sage grass and yeah, it it was completely different than what I was expecting. So we had to we had to sort of calibrate all of our e scouting to match what what it looked like when we got there. Yeah, and luckily while we were driving around and checking out areas, Derek is really good on the phone, and he was able to pick out where the public land is and where the the private land is, and he he actually found another walk in access area further north than I had realized. And uh, we were scouting that out. And we found this one little water hole. And there was a cow off to the side of it. We didn't really pay much attention to it. But we're looking for tracks. And we see this pickup truck come rolling down through. And uh, it ended up being the rancher that works that land. That's part of his pasture area. And he's the one that allows the the walk-in access. And uh, we talked to him for a while. And he he uh he gave us a pretty good couple tips on where to look for them and uh, that that's what really saved our bacon <laughs> that's what really so saved our bacon that, i think at that point it was about 3 p.m. and we had been in the truck driving around this like the entire area on all the state and county roads from 7 a.m. to to 3 maybe 4 p.m. and it was looking bleak we weren't seeing a whole lot of sign. We weren't catching uh, any good watering holes, any good pinch points, any funnel. And after talking to this guy, he basically pointed us at, he was like, I have this small meadow that we pasture our, our cows in. It doesn't look like much on the map. You got to follow these two tracks. And he gave us some like good country directions. And if we hadn't actually talked to him, and gone over those like like county road two track type directions. I don't think we would have found it. 
on our own. Yeah, yeah, that worked out awesome, I think. It's nice that this guy was allowing access, but then also had uh, some tips for you. I feel like if you're on public land on the East Coast, it's uh, you almost look at someone sideways and they start giving you tips. <laughs> Whether is this... <laughs> Is this, uh, is this a diversion or what is this? Um, well, he, he he laughed at us when we told him we were going to try to bow hunt antelope. So he, I think he, <laughs> he took pity on us. Yeah. So I guess, um, so this is like four o'clock-ish. Now, are you guys just staying mobile the whole time? Like pack up your tent. It's in the truck with coolers and stuff. And you guys are m- moving around with the with the vehicle? Yeah, we figured early in the morning it was probably the best choice. We were gonna, we were planning on hunting those HMAs, but we're like, well, let's just scout out and see what we can find. So we packed up everything, and it's a good thing we did because it worked out perfectly. We uh, we took his directions and looked down over this, uh, yeah, I guess it's a bluff or something like that, where it's like this prairie kind of just stops and drops off and there's little washers and fingers and stuff like that but then down below that he called it a river but it's only like 10 feet wide and two feet deep but yeah there was a bunch of cows and some horses down there but there were also a bunch of pronghorn kind of scattered in amongst them so uh that's we decided to focus on that area nice how'd you select your campsite oh um because while we were scouting, we were drive. We drove down to that area where you could park and walk in. And uh, while we were doing that, most of this area, it's all like rocky and sagebrush. And we just happened to find these two spots that it, it was on public land. And it's just perfectly flat and like grass. So we're like, oh, all right, this is perfect. So that's where we set up camp. Yeah, I was, I was doing the, uh, the navigation map questing and i was working the paper maps too so i was his navigator so i marked it i marked it on my onyx um if if you look at my onyx it is just littered with green red and yellow uh pins i was just dropping them like it was like they were free uh and i think it actually helped us out a lot because every time every time we had an encounter we found sign we found a deadhead there's a lot of water pump stations out there, and most of them are dry. So you kind of got to find where the cattle are at and then figure out if there's a salt lick nearby, if there's a pump station, or if there's a natural well uh, as to where they're getting their, their water from. Now, when you mentioned these pump stations, are you saying like for ranchers, like for cattle? Like they have pumps yeah. that, that basically fill up a tank just for cattle, not uh, not for anything else? Yeah, this area that we were actually looking at, there was a pile of these pump stations, uh, whether they were fed by a well or some of them still had like a weather vane that would, as the wind would turn, it would actuate a pump and fill up a reservoir and that would fill up the water basin. But yeah, there was a whole bunch of them. So it was kind of, it was really difficult to try to narrow one of those down to set a blind up on. You mentioned there's uh, there's like weather vanes. Were there a lot of like... uh... Wind turbines out there? I'm just curious, like on the landscape, where, like the big ones, you know, like you see if you're going from, I've seen before going like California to Vegas, it'll be like a wind farm almost. Do you have any of that stuff out there where you guys yeah. are at? Yeah. There's a ridiculous amount, especially at night. Somehow they synchronize them so they the red lights flash all the same time. But the entire like 
horizon, the edge of the earth. It was just nothing but blinking red lights as far as you could see. Wow. Yeah. But not directly where we were. It was it was wide open where we were. Yeah, they were about 50 miles away. But we had to pass by them on our way 80 west. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so this is, uh, I guess, day two, right? So you're you're up after the camp, and then did you kind of just go to that same location where you guys spotted them mixed with, like, the cattle? Well, it, it's funny. When we had met the rancher earlier, we were talking to him about he, – he mentioned that there was – he heard that rain came through there the night before, and we, we said, yeah, we drove through some rain on the way up. He goes, well, we haven't had rain for months out here. And uh, it, it didn't occur to me that, like, we're in a desert. So that very next night after scouting, we set up camp, and it just started to rain and rain and rain. Thankfully, I brought the truck, and I decided to bring a canopy, mostly for the sun. But I set that up, and we could, you know, have a kitchen on the back of the pickup truck out of the rain. And I also set my tent kind of partially underneath it to help keep some of the, the water off of it. The next morning, we woke up. Everything was nice and dry and clean. We came up with a game plan. Derek did some really good e-scouting, and he could see where the there were animals that were clearly going under the fences. You could see the, the trails on the, on the satellite imaging. And cows aren't going to be doing that. So we assumed those were the antelope, and we could kind of see the trails that they would take to go down these fingers, down into that lower valley. And so I was going to set up in one of those valleys and he was going to set up on a, a prominent finger overlooking that valley. And he was going to make note of where antelope came in and, you know, the routes they took and where I was, it was just kind of fingers crossed that something would come down through there. I did see uh, a doe and I, I don't know what they call young antelope, a lamb. On, I don't know. But uh, two of those did walk within about 200 yards of me, but they didn't come down through my little gully there. Now, do they just look like smaller antlerless pronghorn or or they like, is there any coloration differences? Like, you know, like white-tailed deer, they have like white spots if it's like a, a real young one. It's just like small, uh, small pronghorn, basically. Same coloration. Yeah, it's it's mostly a size difference, and I don't think they don't have antlers or anything. And uh, the males, they they'll have like a big black patch on their cheeks too. You can you can tell a male that the neck's nice and thick and everything like that. We saw some real nice ones while we were out scouting. Man, you guys must have done some uh, extensive e scouting because that's a that's a really good hot tip about looking at the fence lines. And seeing what tr what game trails and everything was going through those fence lines, that's look that's really looking down there, like to the blade of grass, you know, and especially in a large unit. When when we made it out to that spot, there were two groups of pronghorn down in that meadow, drinking with the cows, and so we basically, uh, you know, that Boondock Saint scene where the guy is talking about how he got to. To all of these dead bodies. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Kind of, but I don't know where you're going with it. So in in Boondock Saints, you just you're you, you see the end the ending of how of how they got there, and one of the cops is basically like yarning 
this ridiculously obscure and probably outrageous, outlandish scene of events that had to take place in order for them to get into that position. And that's kind of what I did is I just made a story in my head as to knowing what we saw on like the, the imagery overhead, having walked most of the, the game trails as to, as to all of the fingers that went down and then seeing the antelope right there in the water. And I, I kind of like recreated their, their story of how they got down there and how they, and how they got to that position. And I was about as wrong as you could get. But. <laughs> Are you talking about in Boondock Saints the the toilet one in the beginning, off the yeah, balcony? Yeah, with a huge freaking yeah, guy. huge freaking guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I didn't know if you were doing that one toilet. or the Willem Dafoe. There was a fire fight when he's in the street. So, okay, you're thinking toilet it, it bowl was, one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was basically the the incompetent cop. That was like. It was just making up the story as to how it all got there. And that's that was what we were going with is like that's how they get down into that watering hole. Um and you know, like uh the, the story about the blind the blind squirrel, he gets a nut every now and again. And that's kinda how how it worked out is they didn't do it the exact way that I thought that they were going to, but they did come through through the, the same spots. And so we observed them going through that the day out. Yeah. I just started getting impatient because I was thinking to myself while I was sitting in that little, it was a pretty tight pinch point, but I can't imagine cows were taking these paths because they were really skinny and it was fairly steep where, where it was. But uh, yeah, I just, we didn't see any fresh tracks or poop or anything there. So I just, walked back up to the top and I was going to go join Derek and maybe come up with a different game plan. And as once I got up to the top where it benches off and it's all flat, I just looked around to see if that doe and lamb were still around. And I just happened to look over and I go, Oh geez, there's some right there. And uh, there was a group of five of them. They were about 500 yards out. They didn't notice me at all. So I made my, my way over to Derek, and of course, he's looking the opposite direction. And I go, Derek, there's five of them right there. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've seen some over here and seen some over there. I go, no, 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 behind us, like 500 yards. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we were looking them over, and I could see it was just a bachelor group of bucks. And uh, there was they're all pretty small except for one. One, I was like, oh, yeah, that, that's a shooter. So we were trying to figure out what to do from there. The main plan was eventually they're going to have to go to the water. And so I would just, you know, keep an eye on them, try to intercept them as they were working the way down. But uh, shortly after that, they all started to bed down. And I noticed they bedded at, bed down just like deer, where the wind was at their back and they were looking downwind of them. <laughs> pretty much right at us um and their eyesight's amazing for pronghorns yeah boy here it's yeah like, it's very hard to to trick that especially in the open landscape too yeah and once get once you get into their you know cleaning their skull and stuff their eyes are huge but uh yeah so we didn't know what to do we figured we had a few hours just to to hang out and watch them before they got up and moved 
So we were thinking, well, one trick that people say to do is like wave something white and they'll come over just out of curiosity. So Derek was, he went back to the truck the long way, which was, you go down in the, the, the finger gullies or whatever and work your way back up. And I kept my eyes on the pronghorn just to see if they would react to him getting up to the truck because where they were at on just this like very slight knoll, it seemed like it would be, I don't know, they it's, I could see how they would probably be able to see our truck because it's just wide open, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was watching to see if there's any reactions or anything like that. But nothing too crazy. They just kind of laid there. The one on the, the farthest left, which would would be closest to the truck, every so often would stand up. But he was just circling around, laying back down. And uh, yeah, they didn't even notice Derek. And so Derek, so you went back and got like uh, some type of white t-shirt or tarp or trash bag or something. What what happened from there? I did end up going back to, to Paul's position. Um, so I went back to the truck. And let me tell you, it is because I had been dissecting all of those finger ridges for like the last two hours. And I thought I knew what it looked like. But then as soon as I got there, it was way bigger and way steeper than I gave it credit for. So when I got to the bottom of that finger ridge, I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to get back up. And so instead of taking the one that that Paul went up to, the one just just south of our position, I went even further over to the more gradual cow path. But it took me further out, and I ended up walking, I think it was, I think it was about a mile just to, just to go all the way around back to the truck and then come all the way back. Yeah, definitely going to pack a, a white T-shirt next time in the in our bags. Yeah, and next time I'm going to do a, a lot of uh, cardio training because going from basically sea level to 7,000 feet, holy cow, we would walk like 100 yards and be winded, you know. It's just, it was ridiculous. Oh yeah, that, yeah it, al- that elevation altitude is is uh, no joke. I, I'm basically sea level too. I think yeah, I'm yeah. at like 200 feet or something. <laughs> so that is a drastic change for an East Coaster. Yeah, yeah. Us Flatlanders don't stand a chance out there. So I was huffing and puffing, and I ended up scrambling my way back up to to where he was at. And by that point, they were actually in a little rock outcropping. Um, gosh, what would you say? A hundred, hundred fifty yards from from where we were at? No, they were they were still quite a ways out. They're probably I don't know four hundred yards out. But while Derek was gone, they did one by one casually start standing up and feeding again. And then the the one the largest one he stood up and he was feeding along with them. I go, uh oh, it looks like they're feeding off to the right, which isn't the draw that we were set up on. So I was like, well, I got to get over there just in case. So I snuck down over the edge of the cliff and went up the second draw and I was able to crawl up a ways and I could see these, these boulders out there. And I was thinking to myself, geez, I should crawl up there and see if I can get close enough. But I got to a point where I could kind of stand up and look out over the, the landscape and I could just see, the the horns 
moving around. And it looked like they're actually moving back to the left towards where we were. So I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I backed down through that little gully, back around the cliff, back up to where we were. And that's when Derek ended up showing back up. But yeah, they started, uh, they end up started feeding a lot harder back over to the right where I was originally. And uh, I pointed out to Derek, see those boulders? I was right there. I should have just stayed. I, yeah, at that point, I was I was breathing pretty darn heavy. I don't remember if we coordinated me putting up the the flyer or if we just wanted to see if we could get their attention with it. I don't remember. But they started going off to the right. Oh, yeah, that's right. You did wave it a couple times, and they, they didn't even pay attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole trip was all for naught. <laughs> yeah. But but you never know so until decided, it happens. So yeah, so I decided. Well, this is this is the pivotal moment. Moment I gotta get back over there. So I backtracked back down over the cliff and back up that second draw, and I got to a point where I could see their horns. There was a couple of them that must have bedded back down because I could see their horns and they weren't really moving around, but they were looking directly towards me. And so I looked at the way the junipers were kind of laid out and there was a three little mounds that might've been, I don't know, a foot tall, but that rates the junipers, which were, or not, not the sagebrush, sorry, the sagebrush probably, which is, I don't know. What would you say? Two feet tall, maybe foot tall. Yeah. Some of those, some of those big ones were, were like nice and bushy and, and two feet in height. Um, yeah, and the whole the whole time you were going over there, I had I had the spotting scope just trained on him. I didn't have any way to communicate directly with you, but I I kept my eye on basically like to see if they if they had him pegged. And the whole time they were they were kind of in that feeding pattern where two or three would be laying down, one would be feeding, that one would lay down, two would get up start feeding and they were just kind of real lazy and very very relaxed where they were at so yeah that was that was a good sign so the whole time i was just kind of waiting for them to like uh snap their eyes over over him and run 70 miles an hour away <laughs> yeah uh, just just expecting the worst and yeah they just they just stayed calm. They stayed cool, and they were they were mellow basically the whole time. Yeah, I, I got to the point where I couldn't be hunched over anymore. I had to go to my hands and knees and started crawling. And then uh, I noticed one was kind of out in the open, so I range find that one, and I think he was at like a hundred and fifty yards or so. So but a little out in, of bow range, right? <laughs> yeah, he, but he he was in the wide open, and I would have to kind of hopscotch those three little mounds it's just a slight rise in the elevate in the uh, terrain but uh i was like i'm gonna have to crawl behind all these to try to get within bow range and so i started doing that i, I was sneaking up as low as i could until i could see their horns again so i'd lay down lower and uh, it finally got to the point where i was like man i gotta start like shedding stuff so I took my quiver off my bow and I just took one arrow 
I started crawling a little bit more and I was like, oh, my binocular harness is just, it's too loud. So I slowly unclipped that, rolled that off to the side, took my rangefinder off. And uh, yeah, as Derek describes it, skull dragged myself up up through these spots because there were times that there was lit- literally nothing between me and that, that one pronghorn and he could have blown the whole show. You're just mastering the micro terrain, which is yeah, which is tough, tough to do, man. Especially I, when all the odds kind of are against you with what they're equipped with, their eyesight. Um, that's that, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, so how far did you think you kind of to get to these three mounds and then hopscotch each one? Did you did you get to that first mound and then peak, and then were you head down until the second mound? Or how often did you pop up and how long of a distance did you have to travel? It was a probably a hundred yards across those three mounds. But in between the three, it was just wide open. It, there was nothing to hide you from, uh, hide you with. But yeah, I tried to use that negative space and uh, I didn't really peek much. I just tried to make sure I could look up enough to get a sense of where they were. Mm-hmm. ease myself back down and keep going uh that way i'm not surprising them or anything like that but i i crawled up to that that third and final bushy area i guess and uh there was a couple little holes i could actually see through the sage and uh i was able to get up on my elbows and just kind of range them and uh where were they at they were at hanging out at like 80 yards or so uh, for the most part, I couldn't range anything because I really didn't want to poke my head up too high. Mm-hmm. And I would poke up just enough so I could see them. But with a rangefinder, it was hitting the bushes in front of me and it wasn't reading a distance. I was like, no. So a little bit of panic there. Um, but from where I was laying under uh, beneath that sage, one of the little like periscope holes that I could look through, I could actually see the prongs of the largest one. He was bedded. And so I was like, well, I'll just keep my eyes on that guy. And, you know, fingers crossed it all works out. Because there were two of them that were feeding from left to right. And they were getting closer and closer and closer. And there was once or twice that I actually looked out through that periscope hole. And there was one right there i don't know how close he was i would have to guess 40 yards 30 yards something like that but finally i was kind of looking out and i see these prongs these horns sticking up but they're not the big ones so i'm like what the hell and i'm trying to figure out where he is i'm trying to work the angles and stuff and man i don't i don't see him anywhere so i very slowly get up on my elbows and look up over the the top of the sagebrush and I don't see any antelope in front of me except for that one that's bedded. And I was like, no. Oh, they must have winded me or spotted me or something. They, I was like, where the hell did they all go? And then I just look over to my right a little bit, and they're right there. I was like, oh, crap. And the biggest one is actually closest to me. So I get my range finder, and I very slowly get up and range him. He was at 32 yards. <laughs> and Nice. Uh, right. And so I was thinking to myself, well, how do I go from laying flat on my stomach to 
on my knees so I can actually shoot a bow. It's not like you can be hunched over and draw. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. So like, I'm no Cam Haynes, okay? I, I'm not performing any miracles here. <laughs> so I was, I was like, it's, it's now or never. So I very slowly got my knees underneath me and I had my bow in my hands ready to draw. And so I knew there was one of two ways I could do this real slow or real fast. But I was, <laughs> I figured they're, they're going to see me either way. All right. Um, but I, I've been able to sneak up enough on enough animals to kind of be able to gauge reactions. I used to do that with like geese. This guy used had a big golf course type lawn that he always hated the geese on. So I'd go there on my lunch break and I'd just pick a, a branch off like a pine tree and I'd walk around. As long as they didn't see my face, they really didn't care much. They were alerted, but they weren't taken off. So I could just drop that and hammer them. So I was like, well, <laughs> well maybe I could try something like that. So I, I kind of come up fairly quickly and that one, that big one that was closest to me, actually all of them kind of had that, uh, I'm trying not to swear on your podcast. That's okay. You I can, can, I can bleep. All right, go ahead or, and bleep this out. Yeah. You could see in their, in their expression, they had an ocean moment. <laughs> They're like, what the <laughs> is that? And so they started running and I was like, oh no, but they ran and ran and then they stopped and held up and they were all looking at me like, what in the, they, they couldn't figure it out. So I was, I was at full draw. So I let down and I very slowly grabbed my rangefinder and ranged them. And they were, they were at 80 something yards too far out. So I started to just kind of act relax. I kind of pawed the sage a little bit and kind of just, I just act, acted chill, almost as if like they woke up a coyote, but they were looking at me like, that's no coyote. What the hell is that thing? <laughs> and so they start walking towards me and you could, you can see the expression on their face, like what the hell? So they're quartering towards me and uh, the big one's in the lead and he actually gets so relaxed, he goes back to feeding. And so while I'm doing this kind of, trying to act like another animal. It doesn't matter, you know. So I ranged him again, and I had him at, uh, I think, 70 yards, and I would do a little bit more, and I ranged him again, 60 yards, do a little bit more. I ranged him again. Finally, he was at 52 yards, and he, that's where he had stopped. Well, one of the youngest ones had had enough, and it started to blow at me like a deer. And so the youngest one started to run out of there quick. And I was like, oh, this is my chance. So I drew back. And the, the big one wasn't as alert as they were, but he knew something was up. I knew he was going to run. So he finished turning completely broadside. And I held my pin a little high because well, I'm no bow expert, okay? But at 50 yards, my arrows, are they're dropping in at a pretty steep angle. So I figured that extra six feet, I better aim just a little high. Well, I let that thing go and it was just in slow motion. I just watched it sail through the air and I was just waiting for him to duck or something. And he, it just hits right directly where I, I was aiming. 
it, it got him a, a high lung hit. So he took off at that point and ran out and around with the other ones and broke away. And he started to circle off to the right. The, the other four, they went to the left. I don't know where they went. But he circled back and around to the point where he was running straight back at me. And he was probably 20 or 30 yards before he started to turn. And as he was going by, I could hear his breathing just sounded like it was full of fluid. Mm -hmm. The blood was just pouring down his flanks. And uh, so then he he cut down through that draw that I actually crawled up through. And uh, I was watching to see if he'd pile up, but he disappeared behind some rocks. But I looked over and I could see Derek was on in that spotting area. And uh, he had his binoculars up, so I knew wherever it went down, he was going to see it. Yeah, so <laughs> then I backtracked where I crawled up and picked up all my my gear started head back wait a second so let me uh let me pause for a second so you never shot a bow really before prepping for this hunt this pronghorn was at 50 52 yards somewhere in that range right mm-hmm. and how many pins did you set did you did you practice out to this distance or what, what was like your i uh like typical like comfort range like what were you thinking going in were you like oh i want to try to get this 40 and in or 50 and in or what what, what was your thought process and sight wise what, what kind of sight did you have i just i bought a uh it's a hoyt torex i i i think you can buy them in this like kind of kit it's not like i don't know kind of like a starter bow or whatever uh it comes with all this stuff um it was just a five pin sight. Uh, I had it sighted between 20 and 60 yards. Okay. And yeah, but 60 yards is, it, it just wasn't accurate enough for me to be, feel confident in it. And I really didn't want to shoot 50 yards, but I can keep it within, I don't know, a six inch, yeah. four inch circle. Was it, um, was it windy out there being open? It wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad mm-hmm. as I anticipated. Okay. Yeah. And I and I've been a mechanic basically my entire life, so I really wanted to stay away from the mechanical broadheads, even though I guess the wind affects them less. I just know mechanic anything mechanical can and will fail. Yeah. So I, I had a small uh fixed blade. Okay, so you you uh like double lunged or high lunged this thing, went back Got your quiver and on your binos. At this point, are you uh, are you patient enough to give it time? What What are your thoughts right now? Are you you're thinking you have to get back to Derek? Are you feeling excited, nervous? What, what are you thinking? I'm feeling pretty pretty dang good. Uh, yeah, I hiked back to Derek, and I was like, okay, did you see where he went down? And I was really hoping he was going to say, I never saw him come out of that draw. You know. Yeah, but uh, he said, "Actually, see those horses way down there, and that white dot." I go, "Yeah." He goes, "That's him bedded down." I was like, "Are you serious?" And it was—I don't know how far. How far away was that, Derek? Half a mile, at least. Wow! Uh, yeah. No, it—it it had to have been uh, three quarters of a mile, because. When when we actually went down there with a the truck, it took me a long while to get back up. Um, and let me tell you, it it was a lot different 
uh, from my vantage point than than Paul's point of view. Because the whole time I was waiting, I was I was just sizing up the the deer to see if they were if they were spooking, if they were onto to him. I would lift up my uh, my white T-shirt every now and again just to see if they paid it any mind. Um, just to keep kind of, I was thinking just to keep their attention and curiosity over towards me, like thinking if there are pronghorn over over on this knob, then there could be down in that other draw, other other pronghorn making noise. That was kind of like my my thought process. Yeah, and. I didn't see Paul until well after he had taken the shot. Because um, the whole time he was he was in that draw, he was obscured from my field of view. And so from from my finger, like observation point, uh, he went down the draw and over to, to a different drainage. So I just couldn't see him. So did he look like he was shot or were you are you watching this situation and all of a sudden they they explode and start running or did you know, well, I, did you know heard, he was wounded or hit? Well, I, I heard the, the twang of the, of the bow release and the, the, it was such a satisfying thud, you know, that like almost like banging a drum where you just hear a boom. Yeah. And the one that, that was hit acted erratic. And so I picked up on, on which one was hit. And I went from basically on my on my knees in a kind of uh, kind of a concealed type area, and somehow through all that, I had my binoculars up to my eyes the entire time, and I was watching him run around the field, and he was like making like these heavy wheezing noises, and I I was watching blood pour out the side. And I caught a flash of Paul as it ran in circles around Paul. Wow. Uh, yeah. So how far, yeah. so you're hearing this audibly hearing, like how far are you from uh, the situation from, from the shot site? Uh, 300. Yeah. I would guess 300. Wow. So it's, it's quiet out there. I mean, there's no one out there. It's, because yeah, 300 yards sounds like a, a long way to hear something, really. Yeah, there's no traffic. There's no trees to deaden the noise. Yeah, it's just open. Yeah. And so he he's running around in circles. Like I catch a glimpse of Paul through my through my binoculars. And then the deer just runs straight downhill towards the water. And from my whitetail experience, if you hit a good lung shot and they're they're mortally wounded. Their first thought is to go to safety, go go down in elevation, and go to water. So it's like, okay, we're we're in business because it did look high, but the amount of blood that was pouring out um, down both of his flanks uh, was very promising. That had to be uh, such a freaking cool view, <laughs> especially <laughs> catching Paul in the binos. You're like, oh my gosh, this is happening. <laughs> And somehow I I am like magically transported from on my knees in a concealed position to when I'm when Paul finally comes up to me, I'm standing on my tippy toes on a rock about fifty feet away from from where I was at to begin with. 
so the whole time I had my my eyes trained on the on the antelope and just moving around the terrain and got up onto the highest rock I could so that I could I could watch from my vantage point down into the valley. So he he does cross uh, down the drainage that I think it was the same drainage that that Paul climbed that came up to start with. He crosses south right past me underneath me does two cuts to go he cuts left and then it it's a switch back and he cuts right again and he finally gets into that meadow and i didn't know if he jumped into the water or if he fell or if he laid down or was just out of my out of my vantage but it was close to a little cattle gate and so by that point paul had had gathered his things and came back over to me and i take my binoculars down I tell Paul all this stuff, and then I, I look at what I was expecting to be, you know, three, four hundred yards away, and it's three quarters of a mile down into the valley. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been tracked like single focus on on this deer the whole time, just to just to watch him bed down where he was at. So it took me a while to find that original spot. So yeah, and then we, after that, we kind of gathered up our stuff and headed over towards the draw where he actually ran down through. And we watched him. He's, his head was still up, so we wanted to give him time. So we set up the spotting scope and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, I notice he stands up. I go, oh, geez, he's getting up. And I go and I, through the binoculars. I watch him, and he starts just running to beat the band, and he makes this big circle, but you can see he's like listing over. He, he doesn't have his balance anymore. And so he's running across this part of the prairie, and then all of a sudden he disappears, and you just see this water explode. Wow. fell in the, the river. Oh, we were like, no one will believe this. No one will believe this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So he, he never came out of there. We, we, had to, we were like, well, let's just go down and get him now. So that was just like a death run. He's like, this is, this is it. Basically yeah, got I, up and it was just like yeah. going until he's he's out of life, really. It happened to hit the water. Well, <laughs> the thing that got him on his feet was he was he was sit, laying down and and was kinda like doing that that like sleepy time head nod forward. Yeah. But then uh his his neck went unnaturally far back. Like he was almost passing out. Oh, okay. Uh backwards. Yeah. And that that made him stand up and, and start moving again. Wow. But yeah, if only my binoculars could, could have recorded at the time because we were, we were following it like NBA that, I mean, you couldn't have, have framed it any better. Cause <laughs> yeah, we were, it was awesome. We were tracking him, tracking him, tracking him. And then he jumps down and instead of, instead of like clearing this, you know, two foot patch of, of water, he just makes a belly flop right right down into the into the gully. Dang, yeah, we we're pretty stoked. That's a good first yeah. first hunt day. My scouting. So this is the opening yeah. day of the season. I think we were all done and packed out of there by ten o'clock. Wow, it wasn't it wasn't that early, dude. It wasn't. Uh, I marked him at his first bedding spot at ten thirty, and then we were. I was going back to the truck. And I made it to the truck 1215 to come pick you up. Yeah. 
And uh, it was kind of nice that he felt he went in the river because uh, it washed all that blood off his his sides, you know, for the pictures and stuff. I've heard that blood can really stain pronghorn uh, with those white patches. I, I yeah. hear there's like some considerations, like if you're trying to keep the hide, you really got to focus on like cleaning them. So at least cool them down and rinse them off by the time you got over there. So how'd you guys find him? He was just floating there. And then you guys pulled him out. Did you quarter him up or were you able to get the vehicle down there? And how'd you handle that? Well, we got down there and he was, he was still kind of in a daze up along the, the far bank, but he was so, so far gone that I was able to walk within, I think 20 or 30 yards and he showed no signs of running away. So I put a second arrow into him just to kind of help speed up the process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, waited him out from there we pulled him out we decided instead of trying to process him on the opposite side of the this river that from our truck and everything we found a shallow spot drug him across and that way we weren't getting like the guts and stuff in the river and all that um yeah so we got him to the other side and uh, i started gutting him and uh skinning him quartering him up well, Derek hiked back to the truck to figure out a way to get down there. Luckily, he dukes a hazarded it over a, a berm and broke my exhaust. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> that that exhaust is not custom. Yeah. <laughs> what? So um, what's what's the story there? What were you just amped, Derek? Was it just the landscape, or was it like a did a deadline anything, or did it just bust off and then everyone could hear you in the whole county coming over? Uh, no. Um, so Paul, Paul mentioned that he's a, uh, uh, been a mechanic his whole life. He is, he is a master certified Toyota mechanic with a Toyota, uh, Tundra, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this thing is held on, held together by shoestrings and bubble gum. (laughs) Uh, Why do you have to lie? Why do you have to lie? Instead of having... (laughs) A proper air conditioner he rolls down his windows and says feel that ac so so don't everyone don't knows ac me. robs horsepower okay I, you know yeah. i guess if you're so, an engineer you want the simplest solution so that's windows down simple solution right <laughs> right well that and i'm i'm lazy and i don't feel like fixing my ac yeah and so i mean this this truck's been rattling apart for the last three days we drove all the way across the country. We drove 200 miles of two tracks, and uh, the the exhaust is just getting progressively worse and more loud, and it's just rattling off. Yeah, but po- post berm. <laughs> yeah, he he I, makes my truck sound like a hoopty, but the only things that broke were the things that he broke. Especially when <laughs> when you yeah. say a Toyota, I'm like, wow, if it's this banged up, it must have like 300,000 miles on it. <laughs> So we did end up crossing a two track uh, to retrieve the animal, and um, we walked through. Uh, it was I can't remember if it was a watering station or a or a salt lick, but their farmer obviously or rancher obviously goes up and services it with his pickup. And I figured if there's a two track here, it must go back to to the fence line where we were at. So I hoof it. Basically, the the way that we came, 
uh, to begin with. It was, I want to say, just over a mile and a half to get back to the truck. Could have been two miles. Took me about two hours, like round trip. So a little bit longer than an hour to get there and about 30, 45 minutes of driving the two track down to get them. So follow the, the barbed wire fence that brings me down into the valley. And then I'm winding the two track around where the stream is meandering. And the road just stops and I keep going. Like thinking that I'm going to catch up with it. And I ended up just catching a, a ditch witch had just dug a trench right into it and I smashed the front end of his truck right right into the bottom of that. Put it in reverse, realized what happened, took a left to continue the, the two track around where it was at. And uh yeah, I, I told you it it worked out in the end. I made it down yeah. there. Well and the and in in reality, it didn't even break the muffler. The studs that actually hold the muffler to the catalytic converter. There's a donut gasket in there. It busted. Those were all rusted, apparently, and it busted those loose. And so it's just louder through the, the donut gasket area. So it's not really that big a deal. Oh, okay. Sounded like we had glass packs on the thing because it was just going straight from the header. Nice and nice and guttural. Yeah, she was good. <laughs> she still sounds good. <laughs> but... So, yeah, I quartered it up while he he was doing that and uh, not planning ahead. I, this is where listening to podcasts helps because they give you these lists of gear to have in your backpack at all times. Like, I don't know, game bags and whatnot, rope, tarps. I really didn't have any of that. So I was just cutting the quarters off and laying it on the – I was more concerned about cooling the meat off. Uh, luckily that day, it really wasn't that hot. I think it was in the mid seventies and there were some clouds and stuff. So it really wasn't that bad. Not compared to the other days. Your listeners wouldn't know this, but my, uh, my brother, he was a year and a half younger than me. So we always grew up hunting and fishing and everything together. And we always talked about going out West to go hunting and everything like that. It was always a dream. And so, when all this happened, well, I, he he passed away last year, and so when all this stuff was happening, uh, with the with the getting drawn when I really shouldn't have even been drawn, um, deciding to just go out there and buy the bow and the tags show up the same day and all that stuff, I have to think that he had a a pretty heavy hand in all this, so I did scatter some of his ashes at that location. And then uh, the next day we decided to hike to the top of Laramie mountain, which is a, the first 10,000 foot peak, I guess the, the settlers used to come across and uh, spread the rest of his ashes on the top of there. That's really cool. It makes this trip a little more special and just have the, having those connections there. So that, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That really, that, that really made it worth it for me. I was actually going to ask you guys, what was your best memory of the trip? And what would you do differently? Uh, watching that arrow smack into that antelope. I yeah. couldn't. But it's funny. We met that rancher. Well, I have friends back here that can't believe I was going to even try to 
uh, hunting antelope with a bow, which is understandable because we're from the east. But then we talked to that rancher who's been there for like three generations, and he's never heard anybody. He laughed at us. And then we went to the sportsman's well, warehouse or something like that in Laramie. We were talking to a couple of guys there about it. And we're like, yeah, we're going to try to bow hunt them. They go, yeah, my buddies try that. But they always end up, you know, waiting until uh, they don't get theirs until rifle season. Man, it's like every turn, everyone you talk to, it's like they're trying to take the wind right out of your sails. <laughs> That's right. But, well, you know, I can't say I showed them because they have no idea what the outcome was. But yeah, uh, it just feels good to overcome all that. Yeah. Yeah. What did I, how much time did you guys have allotted for this? I mean, this was a day, the opening day, you're successful. Were you guys expecting to be there a week or longer or less? I was hoping to be there a week, but with the way uh, that the train schedule and everybody's schedule was set up, we really only had, what, two and a half days that we could even try to do it, right? Yeah, it ended up being seven days total from the time I left my house until the time I got back. But, you know, it was 48 hours of driving each direction that, that really cut into it. So we had, we had talked about being able to extend up to, up to additional like 18 or 24 hours, uh, based off of that Amtrak schedule. But what, after we got the thing down and we processed it and, like we got back to the camp and we were fleshing and uh, getting the cape ready and everything like that, splitting the, the lips and everything. We realized if we had done this on that last like half day, there's no way we could have got all that stuff done. There's just, it would have been way too tight. Absolutely no chance. Oh, really? I mean, it, it yeah. took a whole day of just processing and, and getting everything prepped really before you left. Yeah, because I I was pretty really paranoid did. about losing the losing the cape on it. Um, I'm gonna try to mount it. Uh, I hear they're notorious for slipping hair, so we did everything we could to keep it cool, salt it all down, and uh, make sure all the lips and ears and everything were split. The ears took forever because I didn't bring the right tools, but uh, we got it done. Nice. Does that kind of go into what you would do different when you go in the future again? Of, of time management or yeah probably some time management i also brought like an entire tote of stuff to process the meat i was thinking we could get a hotel room one night and just process the meat and that way it's all packaged up and everything ready to go but uh yeah we never would we never had time to do any of that stuff so i wouldn't have brought that but yeah but like you said you're in a truck so it's not like yeah. it has to be on your back the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. We have the room. Might as well utilize it, I guess. Yeah. But So I was the one that was doing all the meals. And I don't know how I forgot, but, but Paul is allergic to uh, tree nuts and, what is it, tree nuts, cashews, and something else? Well, yeah, peanuts. namely, mostly just cashews, not, not peanuts, cashews. Yeah. Peanuts are legumes. Allergic they grow in the ground. So, Derek, did you just cook everything in cashew oil? Is that what happened? He would have. Yeah, but almost all, almost all of my snacks had uh, cashew in it. What? Um, the 
the first friggin' thing he pulls out, the first friggin' thing he pulls out is a giant bucket of mixed nuts with cashews and stuff in it. I go, are you serious? He's like, that's that's funny. He's like, what? Oh my gosh. I was like, do you remember what kept me out of the Marines? (laughs) Yeah. It's a nut allergy. Um, And so, yeah, I had had a a Costco-sized thing of trail mix. All of the granola uh, had had a, like, a multi-nut mix in it. Mm-hmm. And then the protein bars that I brought had had nuts in it that he was allergic to. So I'm going to – I would definitely do that different because <laughs> if Paul hadn't killed him the first day, we would have been <laughs> – we would have been some hungry animals because there was just a few little Debbies and some – peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Oh yeah. The pocket Debbie's. Yeah. Those were good. Well, it sounds like Paul would have been really hungry. <laughs> it sounds like you would have had plenty of food there. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you brought an EpiPen, right? I'll eat this around you. <laughs> so did you guys cook up any, uh, any antelope while you're out there? Yep. That first night. Boy, did we? Yeah. I don't know if antelope are actually in the the mountain goat family but we did fry up some uh rocky mountain oysters you did okay we did um and also uh that first night i cut up the heart because it it's kind of a tradition that, that some people do is on the first on the first night you you fry up the heart and eat that so that's what we ended up doing and I, I don't know, Paul, like, what were your thoughts on it, dude? I can't speak for you, Derek, but that was the first time I've had testicles in my mouth. <laughs> and it, it actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I believe later on, I guess. yeah, the next day, I'm my definitely going to reuse that clip for the outtakes. <laughs> my, my wife called the next day and she was like, Oh, so how, how are things? I go, oh, pretty good. She's like, oh, did you guys eat any? I said, yeah, the heart and the the nuts. I said, I don't know what you girls are complaining about. They actually weren't that bad. <laughs> Derek lost it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man, it was awful. How did you guys cook uh, it up? Did you guys just but, fry it up? What's the preparation for Rocky Mountain Oysters? Did, uh, did you was, schnitzel it? Did it you smash a, them up or what? You never smash them. <laughs> no. Don't do that. Is it like a gusher? <laughs> oh, goodness. No. He cooked no, them up you... kind, of, kind of like sausages in a, a deep pan full of uh, butter and then kind of basted them with butter as they cooked. Okay. I don't know if you – did you put seasoning on them? Yeah, it's salt, pepper, and garlic. Oh, okay. Okay. That's SPG. Have you guys yeah. done Rocky Mountain Oysters before? No, I hadn't. No, I I hadn't either. But we, I cut mine into thirds, and it really, it tastes like it, it was a lot like scallops eating. They were kind of like squishy or whatever, but it really, it tasted like broiled scallops to me. Hmm, that's good to know. I mean, I love scallops, so yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, it tasted pretty darn good. What do, what do we have with that? Because it was it was that heart and 
I think that was it that first night, right? Or did we, did we, is that when we ate the, the tenderloin too? Or was that the next day? That was the next day. Oh, you know what? Uh, baby potatoes. Oh yeah. I, I cooked, I cooked, uh, little potatoes in my percolator. Yeah. This came out pretty good. The next morning it was, uh, liver, liver and onions. And then that afternoon was tenderloin and something else. Ooh, nice. And it's funny because yeah, we when we, when we ate that tenderloin, it kind of there was like a sagey flavor to it. But I've eaten other cuts of meat since I've been home, and it you couldn't tell the difference between that and venison. So really, it was kind of weird. Yeah, there's like certain certain parts of it you can definitely taste the saginess. I don't know if it's because I laid it on the sage brush or something. That that probably had something to do with it. I bet, but I mean, for the most part. No, it tastes great. Yeah, even even that strong sage flavor, it was really good. It, I think it was because we worked so like so stinking hard to get it. Yeah, we were we were appreciating all of the, the flavor that it brought. Yeah, and it was nice while we were out there in the middle of the sage flats and all that stuff to eat it, and it's like, oh, it has some of, uh, you can taste the here in the food. You know what yeah. I mean? It was, yeah, it brings you back. That is so cool. And even, you know, not only is it some good cuts of meat and it tastes good, but just, like you said, the atmosphere, just sitting there, like looking across the, the prairie or whatever, thinking, man, this is living. Like, right. Until, like, this is so awesome. Oh, that reminds me, after we were done, like, uh, uh, getting the meat and everything off the cake, and uh, Derek also saved the, the back section of the, the hide. So we cleaned that all up too. So we got all that stuff prepared. Well, off in the distance, you could see another rainstorm coming. And I was like, great. Well, let's go dump these scraps someplace because the coyotes out there are everywhere. It's ridiculous with coyotes. And so we drove, I don't know, a couple miles away. It really wasn't that that far. Dumped the stuff and it was kind of sprinkling. We drive right back to camp and... You would have thought a hur thought a hurricane came through. The freaking canopy that was covering our tent and stuff was completely crushed, and it crushed my tent. So I try to park my truck to block the wind, and I I get out, and I'm trying to stand like push the canopy off of it. Thankfully, we had the foresight to actually like pin it to the ground, so it didn't rip up out. But I couldn't even push the canopy off of it to try to move my tent or anything like that. It was just a screaming wind. And, uh, yeah, so we got back in the truck and Derek ended up falling right asleep, uh, cause it was an exhausting day. Uh, I finished waiting for the storm to pass. Luckily, cause I'm a gear junkie, I had a second two man tent. So I went and I set all that, <clears throat> set all that up. Pulled our stuff out of my old tent, and uh, all of Derek's stuff was perfectly fine, dry. My sleeping bag was soaked in the the foot box area, um, and my sleeping pad was wet. But who cares about that? Yeah, so I set all that back up in the the fresh tent, and we went and slept in there for the night. But yeah, that it wrecked my old tent. And it, it's too bad too because they don't make that one anymore. And I actually reached out to Eureka. And they said, "No, sorry, we don't. We don't make that one." 
Oh, but, man. Uh, yeah, but they did give me a good resource for a company that makes tent poles. So the only thing that actually really happened was one of the tent poles. Two sections of it got bent pretty pretty radically. So I think I can either replace those sections or get a complete new pole. Oh, okay. So nothing tore into like the walls or the or the or anything of the right. tent. Okay. Yeah, I, I was I was very surprised because this tent is at least fifteen years old, you mm-hmm. know, and I've I've used it a lot. But she still works great, and uh, I'm hoping to get it back up and running. So after the storm, and I know you guys said you did uh, Laramie Mountain and all that. Did you like Euro the mount? The, I mean the the skull before coming back. And can you talk about like I know the horns are different. There's a certain way you gotta like need to approach them, right? Yeah, Derek cleaned it up while we were out there. Got the eyes and most of the meat and stuff off of it. Um, once I got home, the Wyoming Fish and Game Department actually has a really awesome video on how to clean antelope skulls for Euromount. They use a uh, what are those things called? Submersion cooker. They there's a name for it. I can't think of what it is. But I bought one of those for my wife. I don't know a couple of years ago. She doesn't like the the way this meat comes out. So that's perfect because now I can cook skulls perfectly every single time at a sous-vide. low temperature. Yeah, sous vide. That's it. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, so I watched the video and I I remember the guy saying. You don't, he's like, most people want to just pull up on the horn sheaths, but you have to use a twisting motion. So I took the, the skull out after four hours, like I said, and I was standing on the skull and I'm trying to twist, but pull at the same time as hard as I can. And I'm like, I'm giving it everything I got. And then I can hear crunch. I was like, oh no. I go, he, he took them off way easier than this. So I put it back in the, the bath. So rewatch the video. And he says, don't pull on them, just twist them. I was like, I'm an idiot. So I went, twisted them, they popped right off. <laughs> and uh, it's really weird inside there because it's like this like gelatinous cartilage. But it's also like the new hair is in there too to grow the next horn because they actually shed those horns. And it, I don't know, even like skinning the face or whatever the skull it's so different than a deer because i'm used to you know you have to work around the base of the the antlers and everything well these horns are hair so it's kind of it just kind of like melds into the rest of the hair it's weird it is so weird that is interesting it's not like a pedicle like there's not like a a hard a hard stoppage point right yeah it it is weird just for listeners, um, how we're talking about these, they're like sheaths, right? Do they call them sheaths or do they call them something else? For Yeah, I think they, I think they call them horn sheaths, yeah. Yeah, so for like a, like a white-tailed deer um, or an elk or something, um, they shed their whole antler. And then you can see there's like a flat base where they're going to start growing again for the next year. But for pronghorn, it's this sheath over over like a kind of like a, a smaller little kind of like a bone core maybe or something and then yeah, all that gelatinous like devil horn yeah yeah and all that gelatinous and hair whatever I, i've never seen it just had it described to me 
that's all inside that. So they shed this sheath and basically like just grow another horn on this, on this, this, uh, this little core base. Um, so it's a little different than just a flat falls off like a white tailed deer or something. Is that, that's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I guess they're the only animal horned animal in the world that actually sheds its horns. Yeah. That's the, that's the weird thing where, um, you know, we call them antelope, but I guess in like Africa, that would be more like a, their plains games where there would be like a true antelope. And so then there's the people who call it a pronghorn, which is what it's called. But I've heard a lot of locals or Westerners say antelope and then yeah, Easterners say pronghorn. I honestly just like saying pronghorn because I like the way it sounds, honestly. But I do know they're used interchangeably. So if people listening... If you hear say, someone saying antelope out west, it, they're, they're the same exact species. It's a really, I think they're really cool looking. They're cool. They're the fastest North American land animal. They, it's just a really interesting type of species, you know. I think it's super cool. Yeah, once I really started looking into them, because I thought it, it I just, I kind of applied for antelope because I thought it'd be kind of fun. They are cool looking. But then once I got drawn, I really got into it and stuff and, uh. Yeah, they're just, they're awesome. They are, they really are awesome. I guess there's a big scent gland on their back above their butt. So when I was skinning out that area, I actually carved away some of the meat because I, from what I understand, it's, that's how you make pronghorn taste bad is you get that whatever's in that musk gland on the meat, on your blade and then on the meat. So I was pretty oh. anal about making sure I didn't get that, you know. Pretty anal? Dun, dun. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's a good point because I have heard people say that they don't like antelope or, or they do. It's just the same thing with like deer. People people say they don't like the taste, but I didn't know about that. And I could see people going out there and it's hot and they they cut through that and they keep caping and, and butchering stuff up with the same knife. So that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I wasn't sure either if if it was like if it's like tarsal glands on a deer where it's just kind of like on the surface or if it's like a skunk's glands where there's actual like a sack and a pore or something like that. Or, you know, if you ever have butchered uh, meat uh, chickens or anything like that, you'll see that chickens actually have this little, it's like a little nipple on their back and that's their oil gland. That's what they use to clean their feathers and stuff with. Um, so I didn't know if it was something weird like that or not, because they are very strange animals. So was that more like a tarsal gland, you said, like once you got in there or it was kind of like yeah. just a, a thicker cartilage area and you just kind of said just to be safe and want to take all this off? Yeah, once there's a spot above the hips on a lot of animals that once you really start getting into it, that hip meat area likes to really be glued to the hide. Instead of trying to save that meat, I just kind of gouged it out and and left it as is. I didn't go crazy with it, but I didn't want to risk it either, you know. Yeah. Awesome. And then um so Paul, I know I, I asked you the best memory and what would you do different? Derek, I know you mentioned food would do different. What but Derek, what would you say is your your best memory of this trip? Prairie dog. Every time he saw prairie dogs he couldn't let go of it. <laughs> Were you guys seeing them? I know you said you saw them on the way out and some cactuses. Were you seeing prairie dogs like during the day, like popping up out of the holes? Oh yeah, yeah. Once you got oh, they into were like, 
once you got into like a colony of one uh, of them, dude, you couldn't look without seeing friggin' prairie dogs everywhere. And it was pretty, I, I was very excited. I give Derek crap, but I was the one that was very excited about seeing prairie dogs. <laughs> How, um, he, he was giddy every single time and it, it didn't, it didn't like wear off. Every single time he saw a prairie dog, it was like the first time he had ever seen a prairie dog. They're awesome. <laughs> and yeah. they're these I, little tiny cute kit foxes too. I if they weren't so fast, I would have loved to just grab one, bring it home. Because that thing those things are awesome. They were adorable. Seems like everything just went went well. I mean, besides the rainstorm and the truck crash, but uh uh it sounds it sounds like like the stars aligned. You guys research this really well. You're acting on recent intel from that rancher and just made it happen, which is just freaking awesome. Yeah, I I think it worked pretty textbook for us. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. Like I said, we, we hiked Laramie Mountain the next day because we had a whole day of nothing to do. We didn't see any elk, but we did see some really nice mule deer and everything out there. That, that made me pretty excited. And uh, actually talking to that rancher, he owns another ranch on the other side of those mountains. And he said uh, he was complaining about the elk. He's he said the state needs to increase the number of elk tags, and because uh, he said that they freak out and just run right through the fence, take the fences out. Yeah, hundred yards at a time. Right. Wow. But they also they also give out landowner tags out there. So I'm gonna write him a very nice thank you letter with a photo of that antelope. Yeah. In in hopes of making a new friend. Yeah. Be like, man, you know what would be really great? An elk, and I just got to find them. Man, if someone had elk to get rid of. Right. Oh, if it wasn't so hard to draw elk tag out that way. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Yep. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys were on the, the podcast. Is there any save rounds from you guys? Anything else that, like, uh, we didn't touch on, but it was, like, a big deal with this? I mean, like, just like the prairie dogs? Uh... Well, for one, uh, I don't think Wyoming's on anybody's like vacation destination list, but it is on mine now. That place was friggin' awesome, and uh, we stopped at the State Museum on our way out and stuff, and there was just tons of awesome stuff to see out there. How about you, Derek? Any save rounds? The one thing that I that I almost regret is in the the heat of the moment, chasing down a wounded animal. Uh, I came up on a petrified stump and i only picked up like a like a golf ball sized uh chunk of the of the rock and i marked the i marked the spot with my gps and completely forgot about it until after we were driving home and i was like oh man i never showed you the the petrified wood and it looked like a stump just sticking out of the ground and we were in the museum and Paul mentioned that, you know, he had never seen petrified wood. And I was like, oh, because you have a piece of that in your uh, in your door. Because <laughs> I picked it up and, and grabbed a small, small chunk of it. Yeah, I was enthralled by everything out there. At one point, Derek accidentally stepped on a horned toad. and uh, But that was awesome because I got to pick it up and check it all out. And I was like, holy crap, look at that. That's awesome. And then, like, the first night, we were, we just got there. We set up camp. And Derek spotted a salamander out there for no reason whatsoever. But uh, it was a pretty good-sized salamander. It was probably six or seven inches long. 
yeah, the, everything out there. It was just awesome. What's next for you guys in the outdoor world? Because I mean, that's being in August, early September. That's a that's a pretty early season for uh, for hunting season. What do you guys got going on? Uh, I was gonna go early goose hunting season this weekend, but I don't know if my plans are gonna work out. But uh, I might actually try bow hunting deer. But I don't know. It's up in the air. There's a lot of stuff I want to do and not that much time. Yeah. I mean, you're batting a thousand with the bow. Maybe you are next campaigns, you know? Yeah. You never know. I don't want to get that big an ego, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I do have a couple opportunities that uh, I could. I have friends with some bear baits that are getting hit very hard this year by uh, multiple bears. And uh, I got a couple, well, yeah, three of them that have offered their their baits available to me so nice. i don't know i might get a bear hunting too maybe a bear with a bow huh i know <laughs> that would be sweet cool yeah i'd love to track that and how about you derek you'll be you'll be in uh virginia and what kind of pursuits are you looking at yeah so this weekend dove squirrel and urban doe season opened up and to be honest i i really just want to get out and and go shooting squirrels with my boy uh, at least in this early season. Yeah, just getting deer, filling up my freezer because it's a little bit sparse right now. And then, uh, you just want to do it all. On trapping season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Focus on trapping season once December kicks in. Cool. So, yeah, I, I do have that problem. I just want to do it all. My problem is I'm still on such a high that, like, when my friends are like, oh, come on, let's go goose hunting. We're all excited. Man, I don't know. It's, it doesn't have the same pizzazz. Yeah. You're like, I have a taste for something else now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Excuse me. You can address me as big game. Western big game hunter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I hope you guys have uh, success the rest of the season. And um glad you guys come on tonight. Yeah, hopefully we'll be hearing from you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks for talking. Hey, thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. And if you'd like to support this podcast to sustain future episodes, feel free to click on the listener support link in the show notes. There'll be more content coming. And if there are any questions or comments, you can reach me on Instagram at Outdoors with Steve or at Pivotal Outdoors.